I'd love to have you open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 54, where we will find ourselves today. As you do so, my mind and preparing this went just to the reality that sometimes in life when we need corrective lenses, we're not always aware that we have that need. We're not aware that we're not seeing things or not seeing detail that's there. And uh, my thought goes to this uh, last Mother's Day here. Um, at the beginning of the month, uh, I was in Spokane, and my uh, cousin was telling me about when she first got her glasses. And as a kid, you know, the world is just what the world is to you. And so she talked about the day she got glasses, she, she realized that leaves on the ground were actually connected to trees. Um, you know, as a kid, she knew about leaves, they're on the ground, and she knew about trees, there were these green blobs up there. Um, but, you know, as a kid, she never thought, you know, where did these leaves come from? Just as you want to ask where do the sticks or where do the, the rocks, pebbles, and dirt come from? Like, it's just part of what you find on the ground, right? Then she gets glasses, and it's like, oh, those are made out of leaves, and that's where they come from. It just cracked me up. But the reality is there's times in life where we don't just need lenses for our eyes. We need lenses for how we view the world, how we view God. The reality is the Bible was written to a very different culture from our own. And there's times we miss the details in the Bible because we're viewing them with our Western lenses and we need something else. And as we look at this passage today, I'm going to invite you to to try on a new pair of lenses to see details that you might otherwise miss. And it'll be good, I'm I'm sure. Um, I'd love to just take a moment, ask God for his help today. And so let's pray, and then we'll jump into our passage. So join me. God, we are so thankful this morning that we can open your word. As uh, Pastor Kevin prayed, yeah, you are the creator of everything. We think about who you are, God. You are not like us. You are so much bigger, so much greater. Um, And we could quickly think that you are just distant and far off. But the amazing thing, God, is that you draw near. You're not distant from us. You draw close to us. You want to be known by us. And you've given us your word so we can better understand you. God, as we open your word this morning, we're not opening it just to gain more intellectual knowledge. God, we want to see you more clearly. And in seeing you more clearly, seeing your greatness more clearly, knowing who you are more accurately, God, our prayer would be that our feet would line up more and more with who you are, that we'd live our lives with obedience to you. So God, in this time, as we come to your word, we just simply ask for your help. We know that we can't do this in our own strength, and our own intellect. So God, would you work through your spirit, through your word, to teach us what you would have us know this morning? And we simply pray this in the name of Jesus and through your spirit. Amen. Wonderful. Well, a few things as we get our bearings on where we're at today. As you recall, if you've been around for our series in Isaiah, we've shifted into the second half of Isaiah where we've moved from a message of warning and judgment to a message of hope and restoration. And we've seen some different kinds of restoration that God's been promising. One has just simply been physical restoration. As Israel would find themselves in captivity, they needed to be freed from captivity, and God would work through different servants. One of them uh, was Cyrus. But in the last couple of weeks, we've been in this section here in Isaiah 49 through 55, where we've shifted from physical need to spiritual need. We've shifted from the, the need to be freed from physical captivity to the need to be freed from 
spiritual captivity, and we need a far greater servant than Cyrus. And so we've been introduced to this figure, the servant of the Lord. And in this section, we've had four of what we call servant songs. And after each of the servant songs, there's a response. And last Sunday, Pastor Jay looked at the fourth and final servant song with us, and, and we saw that the servant of the Lord would give his life so that God's people can be restored to God. And of course, we know that it's talking about Jesus and his work on the cross, his sacrifice, his death and resurrection, so that we could be restored to God. And where we find ourselves today then, Isaiah 54 and 55 are really one unit, and they serve as a response to this fourth servant song. And what we see is, as a result of the servant's great sacrifice, Isaiah 54 reflects on the certainty and extent of God's restoration. That's our focus for today. Whilst Isaiah 55 shifts to an invitation to participate in that, or that restoration. And that's really going to be our focus next Sunday with Pastor Matt. So today we're going to look at this. What does God promise as a result of Jesus' work on the cross? What kind of restoration does God promise for us? Now, to show us the greatness of this restoration, the greatness of his love, what God does is he gives two images of his people that show the depth of their shame and the greatness of his love. So we get two different images today. We're going to look at the first one, and then we'll come back and talk about the second one. But what I'd like to do, I'm going to read the first 10 verses as we look at this first image of a shameful woman, God is comparing his people to a woman who has experienced great shame. And he's going to talk about how he's going to restore her to a place of honor. Verse 1 of chapter 54, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen the cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood, you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflow and anger, for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart, the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. So here's this first image that God paints. And as we read those 10 verses, beautiful imagery in there. And, and we see all these amazing things God's going to do. And, and we might see those uh, and focus on them and miss the shameful picture that God is painting 
in the first place. You know, there's times in life where, I don't know if you ever encountered someone who, man, they've just had so many hard things happen to them. You just shake your head and say, wow, how can so many bad things happen to one person? I, I came to my mind, we're reading as a global outreach team, we're reading in the land of the blue burqas, a book about a lady, a Christian lady who lived in Afghanistan for a period of time. Uh, our ladies read this book a few years ago, and we're reading it just to get a better feel for Afghan culture and things like that as we prepare for uh, working with some refugees. And this lady, because there's generations of conflict that extend far beyond recent events, um, there's just a lot of people there who have difficult lives. And one stood out to me, this lady named Nazira. She's a woman in her late 30s, looked far older than that, living in destitute poverty. And... Um, uh, her story is just a sad one. Uh, when she was a little girl, her dad was killed by a, a tribal warlord. He didn't have anything to do with the conflict. He just got caught in the crossfire. And her mom remarried, married a very brutal man, an angry man who beat the family. Typically in Afghan culture, the kids would go live with the dad's family, but because culture wasn't quite functioning, they stayed with the stepdad. And she thought, life can't get worse than this. But it did. At about 13, she's not really sure how old she was because of conflict and all those things, but her mom married her off to an older man whose wife had passed away. And he too was a very brutal person and beat her. And to add insult to injury, she couldn't have kids. And this just made his wrath even more greater. Eventually, she got pregnant after several years and she thought, oh, maybe this will kind of subdue my husband's anger. It didn't. The beatings continued. She had another kid, and she's pregnant with her third, and then her husband was killed by a a tribal warlord as well. And here you have a a young woman, two children, third on the way, now in desperate, desperate situation, desperate poverty. And all this happens, she's only in her mid-20s. In my mind, I just shake my head and say, how can one person receive so many difficult things? And kind of as I hear the story of Nazira, my mind goes to this text of, of this woman that's being painted as God saying, you are like this woman. Uh, the picture we're given is of a woman who's dishonored in three ways. She's barren, she's widowed, and she's divorced. Now, those three things don't strike us quite the same way. They don't carry the same sense of shame that they would have carried in the ancient world. And so I want to unpack a little bit of what's going on here. Now, in the ancient world, to be barren just brought massive amounts of shame to a woman. Um, and many of you know, my wife and I struggled with infertility. We, 10 years it took us for our daughter to come along. Um, during that period of time, it was, yeah, it was difficult. Um, there was a lot of growth we did. But I don't know if we necessarily felt deep shame or dishonor. You know, our culture is a fairly egalitarian culture, and, you know, you can find a sense of identity in a very, various things. My wife had ministry she was doing, she was working, all these things. And so there wasn't quite that same, like, my identity is in bearing children. But in the ancient world especially, as a woman, your identity was in having children, and to be barren was, came with great shame. I think about several of the women in the Bible we see who struggled with this. Uh, Abraham and Sarah. Sarah was, you know, couldn't have a kid for a long time, and it was devastating for her. I think about Rachel and Jacob. Remember their story? Uh, Jacob's in love with Rachel. He thinks he's marrying her. He gets tricked into marrying her sister Leah. 
Uh, then they, he marries Rachel as well. Leah can have kids, Rachel can't. Uh, I just was going back and looking at that, and what she says in Genesis 30, verse 1, when Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she envied her sister. Give me sons or I will die, she said to Jacob. Can you hear the devastation in her words? And eventually she gives Jacob a concubine just to give some sense of I have somebody to my name. Eventually God does give her kids, and her words strike me in Genesis 30, 22. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace, my disgrace. My mind goes to the story of uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth, uh, an older couple. And when God, the angel Gabriel visits and says, you're going to have a son, he's talking about John the Baptist. Uh, Elizabeth's words in Luke one twenty five: thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Sense the shame in that. And so this is the picture that God's painting. But it doesn't stop there. On top of this, this woman isn't just barren, but she's also a widow. Verse 4 mentions the reproach of her widowhood. And you might think, well, you know, a lot of women lose their husbands. That's not so uncommon. Does that really come with shame? Well, in the ancient world, if your husband died, you sure hope that you had a son to carry on the family name, to carry on a way to bring income in. But remember, this woman doesn't have a son. She's barren. And so this puts her in a very desperate situation. My mind goes to the story of Naomi and Ruth. You recall that one? Naomi and her husband moved to a foreign land. Uh, She has two sons. They marry uh, foreign women. So she has two daughter-in-laws. And then tragedy strikes the family. First, Naomi's husband dies. Then her two sons die. And here you have this woman left with two foreign daughter-in-laws. One of them stays in her land. Naomi travels home and Ruth, the other one, comes along with her. But their situation isn't good. I mean, they really are in a desperate place. As, as they return home, and you might recall Naomi's words. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara because my life is bitter. You hear that anguish in her voice? And sure enough, what does Ruth do? Well, her job is to glean. She follows behind the people harvesting the fields and you just kind of pick up the leftovers not a really good position to be in. Of course, the beauty in that story is Boaz comes along, and it's more than just a romantic story. Boaz serves as a redeemer for the family. And in marrying Ruth, he doesn't just redeem Ruth, he redeems Naomi by giving her now grandchildren to her name and takes away her shame. So these are the pictures being developed. But but that's not the end of the story. This isn't just a, a person who's barren and widowed, She's also divorced, the text talks about. And when I read this, I was like, man, I played a what-if game, right? Like, what if in the story of Ruth, after Boaz marries Ruth, what if a week later he's like, you know, I don't really like you. I'm going to divorce you. Can you imagine how devastating that would be to Ruth and Naomi? How shameful that would be to them? And now we're starting to get the picture of what God is painting. He's saying, because of your sin... Your sin has basically made you, given you this level of shame. And how is God going to deal with the shame? Well, the answer is last week's text. It's what the servant of the Lord accomplished. And and taking on the wrath of God on himself, he didn't just take on God's wrath, but he took on the people's shame. He was despised and rejected. He was crushed. People turned their face away from him. 
And the result of this is that God then, as a response to what the servant of the Lord does, now God is able to take all the shame of his people and he's, complete, he's able to completely reverse it. Completely reverse it. See, God steps in as a faithful husband to redeem and to restore her honor beyond that of any other woman. This isn't just about forgiving her, forgiving his people of a debt. He's going to now lavish love and, and honor onto them. The barren woman, we're told in the second half of verse 1, you look at that, she's going to have more children than anyone else. In fact, she's going to have so many children, verse 2, she's told, you're going to need a bigger tent. You're going to need to expand your borders. In fact, your kids are going to cover the whole earth. They're going to be in all the nations. It's an incredible picture that's being painted here. Uh, This widowed woman, God says, I'm going to be your husband. I'm going to be your redeemer. You're no longer going to be disgraced or ashamed. And to the one who's divorced, God says, I'm never going to leave you. Yes, in the past, I turned my face away. And don't see this as an action of a temperamental God. His actions were justified. His anger was justified. But because of what the servant of the Lord has accomplished, God says, I'm never going to turn away from you again. I'm giving you my absolute guarantee. I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going I'm to preserve you Just as I told Noah, the waters are never going to flood the earth again, so too I am never going to leave you. It's a beautiful picture that God is painting for his people. Now he presents a second picture in verse 11. Whereas he compares his people to a uh, a shameful woman, now in verse 11 he compares them to a shameful and broken city. Uh, Cities were supposed to provide security and protection and prosperity to its residents. And this is not the case as we get to verse 11. Yet God's promise is he's not only going to fix these things, but he's going to make the city's beauty a marvel like no other. Let's take a look at this. Oftentimes God uses uh, cities to speak of his people. So he might talk about Zion or Jerusalem. He's not talking about the buildings and an infrastructure. Uh, he's not even just talking about the residents of that city. He's often using that when he's saying, you know, Jerusalem. He's talking about all his people. And this is what's happening here. He's comparing his people to city. He says, so shall my words be that goes out from my mouth. Oops, sorry, wrong, wrong chapter. Let me get to the right one. There we go. Oh, afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, Behold, I will set your stones in antimony, lay your foundations with sapphire. I will make your pinnacles of agate, that'd be like rubies, your gates of carbuncle, that'd be like any kind of red gem, um, and all your walls of precious stone. So first of all, God's looking at this afflicted place, storm-tossed, not comforted, the city that provides no protection. He's saying, basically, I'm not just going to build you up and make you what you're supposed to be. I'm going to be pretty lavish. I'm going to kind of, almost to the point of being ridiculous, like I'm not even going to restore your city with normal stones. I'm going to make you a jewel-encrusted city. Like you're going to glitter. And of course, our minds might go, as you read this, to Revelation 21, where we see God speak about, show his bride, the bride of Christ coming down, as a jewel-encrusted city, speaking to the beauty of his people. And what do we see here? Not only is the city beautiful, but look at the prosperity. Verse 13, all your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established, you shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. This is going to be a place of prosperity and security. 
And I want you to see this final part here as we get into this. Again, God is promising the sureness of this, that he's not going to go back on his restoration. He's not going to change his mind about his people. Look at this, verse 14, um, or verse 15. If anyone stirs up strife, it's not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of the coals. I produce uh, and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that's fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servant of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. In other words, hey, if you guys have difficulty, it's not coming from me. That's what God's saying. Uh, This is certain. And I want you to notice this, that everything that's happening in this passage is all about what God is going to accomplish. It's all focused completely on God's actions, God's achievements, God's faithfulness, and all because of what the servant of the Lord has accomplished. You know, as people, sometimes, you know, we, uh, we look for our, our action step. And, you know, oftentimes there's an action step in a sermon. But as I look at this text, this text doesn't have an action step. That's next week's text. I know sometimes there's people who want to do something, but there are times we just need to stand in awe of God. And that's really my goal for today, for us, to really see the, the beauty of, and the majesty and the love that God lavishes upon us, and to just kind of stand in awe of it and kind of correct our view of God. And we'll talk about action steps next week. Make sense? So I want to talk about this because to fully grasp the beauty of this text, we really need to make sure that we don't have a cultural blind spot. Just as my cousin needed lenses to see that trees and leaves were connected, there, there's cultural blind spots where we look at a passage like Isaiah 54, and we might not see certain details in there. And so we want to talk about that. What kind of lens do we need? And I'd say we need to have a non-Western lens. Here's what I mean on that. I'm going to talk a little bit of worldview with us this morning, okay? In the West, Western cultures are highly individualistic, and we tend to have a focus more on guilt and innocence. And of the Western cultures, America is the most individualistic of all of them. We're hyper-individualistic. Right? Many other cultures are highly communal, and they tend to place far more emphasis on honor and shame. Let me give you an example of how this might work. In, in the United States, if you're a CEO of the company, you do something unethical, maybe highly illegal, and everybody knows you're guilty and you go to court, but you get off on a technicality and everybody knows you just got off on a technicality, you can leave that court with your head held high and a smile on your face. You've been declared innocent. That's in a highly individualistic culture. Other cultures, that might not happen. Other cultures, because of the shame that is felt, that CEO might go home and commit suicide. It happens all over the world. And what I want us to see here is that we need uh, to think about what the Bible not only says about our guilt and innocence, but about our shame and our honor. See, the sin creates both guilt and shame, but the gospel addresses both. Our Western eyes are often blind to what the Bible says about shame, even though, this is a cool thing, the Bible speaks to the problem of shame with far more frequency. But our eyes are programmed to really only see what the Bible says about guilt and innocence. When in reality, the Bible speaks about issues of shame about two to three times more often. And, and I'll give you an analogy, another analogy. You probably have heard the gospel presented in some way like this. Um, 
Sometimes we might explain the gospel like this. Like, imagine you were a car thief. You stole a car, and you got caught, and you wrecked the car in the pursuit and all that. Now you find yourself in court, and you stand before the judge, and you, you have this penalty placed on you. You owe a person a car. Uh, you have your bail you have to pay. There's a debt involved to your crime. And let's say the governor uh, sees you and the good governor comes and says, boy, I really want to help that person. So I'm going to show up. I'm going to give a pardon. I'm going to pay the penalty. I'm going to reimburse this person for their lost car. I'm going to cover all the costs so that you can walk free. Have you ever heard the gospel presented like this? Something similar? And sure enough, there is that aspect in the gospel where we have a debt incurred before God and that debt has to be paid. But there's a shortcoming within this analogy. It's only half the gospel. Because here's my question. If you have your debt paid and you're let go, what is your identity at that point? Let's say you're still a car thief. You're a forgiven thief, but you're still a thief. And you see, the gospel goes way beyond just simply forgiving us of a debt that we have. The gospel goes and gives us a whole new identity. See, here's the thing. I believe that shame is a deeper emotion than guilt because it goes to the core of identity. Guilt addresses Uh, what I do. Guilt is about the things I do. Shame is about who I am. And guilt can be addressed, I believe, by withholding punishment, but shame has to be addressed by actually a proactive giving of honor. You have to change an identity. And really, I think because of our focus on guilt innocence, we miss this aspect, especially when you come to texts like this, because there is an aspect of Isaiah 54 where uh, God's wrath is being quenched, where they're not receiving the punishment they deserve. But that's not the whole story, is it? God isn't just withholding his hand. He's turning and he's restoring and he's lavishing incredible love on his people. One author I read, a commentator, I saw this blindness in here. He looked at this and he thought, wow, isn't it great that we don't receive the judgment we deserve? That was his whole takeaway. I thought, yeah, it's great that we don't receive the judgment, but there's a lot more going on in this text than just not getting the judgment we deserve. In fact, for shame to be addressed, as I said, it requires giving honor, and and that's how God addresses our shame. God addresses our shame by giving us honor and glory. I want to break that down a little bit for us. Now, on your study sheet, I gave you a definition of worship um, from Dr. Steve Hawthorne. He defines worship this way. Worship is that which glorifies God by recognizing his glory, And by honoring him with the offerings of lesser but worthy glories of the nations, worship not only delights and reveals God, it fulfills God's love for people by bringing them to a place of their highest honor before him. Now, you think about this. When God created us, he created us with an honorable purpose. And Genesis 1 talks about God created us in his image. And that doesn't mean that God created us to look like him. That means that God created us to be his physical representative inside of creation, to kind of be like his co-rulers. It's a highly honorable position, but sin ruined that. The other thing the Bible tells us is that God created us to glorify him. Do you ever wonder why you exist on this earth, what your purpose is? Your purpose is to glorify God. But here's the thing, as you see on your notes, because of sin, we cannot give God glory because sin makes us unworthy of worshiping God. See, Isaiah 64, 6 says this, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. On your best day, with your best effort, you cannot worship God on your own merit. 
And I'll give you an analogy to, to, to kind of look at why that is. Let's just say that we have a foreign dignitary coming to University Place. And we'll just say for the sake of this, it's the Queen of England, because everybody kind of likes her. And you have been chosen to have this great honor of presenting the Queen of England with the keys to the city. So as you are working on this, you're working on your speech, you've got this great speech ready to go. And you think, you know what, I'm not going to just wear my best clothes. I'm going to go to the store, I'm going to buy really nice clothes. I'm going to buy, like if it was me, I'm going to buy a brand new custom tailored suit. I'm going to drop some money on this. And the day of the event comes. And of course, we live in Washington, so it's raining. And you step out of your car and you step on the sidewalk and you slip on some leaves and moss and you fall into the grass and you land right on some terrible dog owner's lack of consideration, didn't clean up after their dog, and you're covered from head to toe, saturated. And you don't just look bad, you smell bad. Now, are you able to now go and give the keys to the city to the Queen of England? You have a wonderful speech, very expensive clothes. But you know, it doesn't matter how good your speech is, it doesn't matter how nice your clothes are, in your state that you are in, all you can do is run and hide. You are not going. And that's what this passage is talking about. When the Bible says filthy rags, the idea here isn't just some slightly dirty laundry. It is nasty, saturated, soiled clothing. You cannot come into God's presence and worship him in this manner. So what does a God who created us for his glory, who created us for his worship, what does he have to do? Well, in order to receive worship for us, he has to clean us up. And this has to go beyond just forgiveness. He has to restore the honor that we need to honor him. And you notice that definition of worship I give you, it speaks of honoring him with offerings of lesser but worthy glories. And that's one of the cool things. The Bible actually talks about God giving us glory in order to reflect that glory back to him. I want you to capture this because I think, and at least how I grew up, the idea of God giving glory is just like a foreign concept to me. After all, doesn't the Bible say God doesn't share his glory with anyone? Well, yeah, it does. In fact, I give you the verse, Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord, that's my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. But I want you to know something. Every time God speaks about not sharing his glory, it's always in the context of idolatry and false worship. Yes, God does not share his glory with anything that tries to steal his glory. But I want you to see this. God does share his glory with those who use that glory to worship him. And the problem is not a desire for glory or honor. It's a problem of where do you desire to get it from? You see, the Bible presents a bad kind of glory and a good kind of glory. I'm going to give you a couple verses just to uh, demonstrate this. Genesis 11 and 12. Genesis 11:4. we have the Tower of Babel. People are building this tower, and Genesis 11:4 says they're trying to make a great name for themselves. And God says, nope, not going to have this happen, and he takes care of it. Then right away, Genesis 12, God comes along, he says to Abraham, he's making all these promises, by the way, I'm going to give you a great name. Why is it wrong for these people building the Tower of Babel to establish a great name, but it's right for Abraham to have a great name? Well, it all has to do with what they're using it for. In the Tower of Babel, they're, they're making a name for themselves to steal glory from God. 
in Abraham's case, for all of his failings and shortcomings, one of the things that Abraham always did is he, everywhere he went, he established true and right worship of God. He always built an altar, and through his life, he brought glory to God. God gave him a great name. We see this concept in the Gospel of John. There are people who knew who Jesus was. They knew he was the Son of God, and they, they refused to acknowledge it, and Jesus spoke to what was their motivation underneath. John 5, 44 says this. Jesus says this. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? John comments on this as well later on in his gospel. John 12, 42 through 43. And he says, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And I think a really impactful one is Romans chapter 2. You might want to turn there, because I wouldn't mind your eyes just resting on this verse. But in Romans 2, Paul speaks to this, this good kind of glory, the bad kind of glory. Romans 2, verse 6, he says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Do you notice that? What what are the, the first group of people seeking? They're seeking glory and honor and immortality. And it's a good thing because they're seeking that to glorify God. But in verse 8, what is happening? There's a self-seeking that's a bad thing because it has self as the focus, and it steals glory from God. I think for a lot of people, especially in the West, we're surprised that the Bible says so much about God sharing glory with us. In reality, if you did a word study of the word glory, by far the most times, 66% of the time, that word is referring to God and his glory. But 29% of the time, nearly a third, 29% of the references to glory in the Bible are about God giving glory to us. Beyond just those references, there's a lot of honorific language given to us. I give you a lot of verses there. We're not looking at all of them, but they're really there for your study this week. But I want you to think about this. Any time you see words like son of God, child of God, heir, ambassador, image of God, saint. These are all honorific words that speak of God giving us honor so that we can worship him. I'll give you just a few examples here from this list. Listen to what the Bible says. John 17, 22, Jesus prays this in his high priestly prayer about us. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Ephesians 2, 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Is there dignity there in being citizens and saints? Absolutely. You know, here's the thing I think is so important. As we, as we think about the Bible, and we go back to that analogy of the, the car thief, the gospel fully understood isn't just that the, the governor comes and pays your debt and pays for the car. 
It's that the governor then says, oh, and by the way, I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to put you in witness protection. I'm going to give you a brand new name and identity. And you're no longer known as the forgiven car thief. You're known as the son of the governor. Honorable position. That's what the gospel says. And so as we think about what is my identity, sometimes in the church I, just, I, I hear that we oftentimes just think of ourselves as wretched sinners. And I mean, the reality is I am a sinner because I do sin. But as you know, the Bible doesn't call you, if you are in Christ, it never calls you a sinner. The Bible calls you a child of God. The Bible calls you a saint, an heir of the promise, an ambassador, My mind goes to Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writing to the believers in Ephesus, to the fellow saints in Ephesus. How does he call these people saints? If you know anything about these people, they're messy people. They do a lot of dumb things. And yet, how does Paul refer to them? They're saints. Why? Because it's what God accomplished. It's the identity that they get through Jesus. It's an amazing thing. And and as people, we need to see this, that God has not just forgiven us, not just withheld his wrath from us, but he's lavished upon us these incredible identities, incredible honor for us. I'm gonna use this as we think about how do we respond to God's word this morning. I wanna use the parable of the prodigal son as an example of how the gospel deals with our problem of shame. Uh, Most of us are probably familiar with this parable that Jesus told, but if not, I'll just summarize it. Jesus told the story of a dad who had two sons. The younger son comes to dad and says, Dad, I want my inheritance now. Now, in that day, an inheritance wasn't just like splitting a 401k. It means like it was usually something happened when dad died and you had to sell property to do it. The son is essentially saying to dad, Dad, you're as good as dead to me. Give me your stuff. I don't know why, but the dad does it. He sells his property, half of all of his possessions, and he, he goes and he gives his son his, his inheritance. And his son moves off to a far country, and Jesus tells the story that the son enters into a very shameful lifestyle. It even includes him participating in um, prostitution, and he wastes his money, and before long, his money's gone because the boy's a fool. And then there's famine, and he can't eat, and the only job he can get is to be a pig farmer. And he's looking at the pig food saying, boy, I wish I could eat that. That's how bad off he was. Now, tell me something. Good Jewish boys, is a pig farming a good, honorable job to have? Uh, shame is all over the story. And listen to what the son says, because he comes to his senses. He says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired servants. This is what he does. He travels home. His, son sees, his father sees him coming, embraces him, and the son says this. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Hear what he's saying? Dad, I want you to forgive me, but I know my shame is too great. Just make me a servant. What does the father do? But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. Here's another area where sometimes our cultural distance makes it hard to see what's going on here. But when the father puts a robe on his son, he's not simply just saying, let's put some nice clothes on on the boy. A robe came with a sense of honor. And you think of another story in the Bible that involved a dad giving a son a robe. It was Joseph, right? Why were Joseph's brothers so jealous? Was it just because daddy gave Joseph a nice coat? 
No, this robe was elevating Joseph's status above his brothers. It was a status symbol. It was, a, it was an honor to receive. And this is what dad's doing. I'm, I'm putting the robe on him. I'm restoring his honor. Puts a ring on his finger. It's not just about putting bling on his finger. The rings were often used with the family symbol to sign documents. It was restoring the family privilege and power to him. It's like, you get the credit card, son. And finally, he puts shoes on his feet. Now think about this. This boy had been a pig farmer. Um, he'd walked a long journey. I don't know if he even had shoes at this point, but his feet are filthy. What has to happen for his dad to put shoes on his feet? You've got to wash them, right? Can you think of another time someone washed somebody's feet in the Bible? It's something that a servant would do for you. And so the one having the feet washed was in a position of honor and power. You see what the dad's doing? He's not saying, yeah, son, you can come be one of my servants. He's saying, no, you're my son, and I'm bringing all the honor and the status that's involved in being a son of mine. You know, this is such a beautiful story and a beautiful picture of the gospel because in it, think about this. Isaiah said our, our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. What does God have to do? He takes those filthy rags away, and he clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. We receive a new honorable robe. When God looks at you, he doesn't see your righteous deeds. He sees the righteousness, or your, your filthy deeds. He sees the righteousness of Jesus on you. And I want you to note that all the honor given is solely the work of the Father. The boy doesn't deserve any of this. And likewise, in Isaiah 54, all the work that God is doing to restore, to bring honor, is all the work of God. It's all about God. It's not about our deservedness. It's not about we earned anything. It's not that we got our behavior together and really impressed God. It's God saying, because of what Jesus did on the cross, this is what I'm going to do now. Now, if you were that father in the story of the prodigal son, how would you want the son to respond Should the son embrace his honorable identity? Or maybe does he wake up every day with his head hung low and kind of talks nonstop about how wretched he is, how undeserving he is? As a father, I think I'd get really tired of that pretty quickly. Like, I'd want my son to live into his identity that I've given him. Certainly, the son should never become arrogant. Certainly, the son's life should be marked by humility, knowing that everything he has was received through grace. But he should embrace his identity, and I think that's true of us as well. The identity that God gives you should be embraced with great humility, without arrogance, without pride. But to know that God looks at you and says, if you are in Christ, my beloved child, saint, heir of the promise, ambassador, image of God, great honor bestowed on you. I've talked a lot today about how we often are culturally blind to these issues of honor. I mentioned it showed up with that commentator. And boy, I just, I look at this and I look at Isaiah 54 and I can't look at it and say, oh, the takeaway is just that we don't receive God's judgment. There's so much more here about the lavishness of God's love to us. It made me think about this. How we view our dads really determines how we relate to them. There's a huge difference between a father who wants to lovingly pour into your life versus a dad who just is restraining himself from smacking you. And you know, I think sometimes the way we look at God is we look at God maybe as he's just, you know, you know, thank God for Jesus because otherwise this guy would just, you know, wail on me. I mean, 
yes, Jesus and the work that Jesus did on the cross restrains God's wrath. It, 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 it completely satisfies God's wrath, but it goes beyond that to where God loves us. And, you know, I think of that sometimes. I, I have a friend who is struggling with this idea of God's love. He's kind of just settled with this idea that, you know, God's just working for his glory and we get to be a small part of that. And there's no idea, idea of God loving him personally. And I think what he's missing, and a lot of people miss this, is they think that the worship God wants is like some distant worship from a lot of pitiful people far off who are forced to bend the knee. And that's not what God wants when it comes to worship. You look at that definition I gave you, worship again. Worship, the worship that God calls us to, brings us to our highest place of honor, our highest position of honor. That the, the worship that God desires isn't, you stay far away from me, but you come into my presence and come near me. It's a relational kind of worship. It's a beautiful kind of worship. God is not a needy person needing people to say nice things about him. But he gives us glory and honor so that we would glorify him the way he desires. Man, I, I, like I said, I do see blind spots in our culture, but I am thankful because I'm seeing more and more of these topics are coming up. Um, in fact, I was reading a book uh, a little while ago um, and guys, this is a book I'd commend to you, a book written by Ray Ortland called The Death of Porn. And oftentimes within the church, when we think about the issue of pornography, one of the ways we try to deal with it is we try to shame people into being so disgusted with what they're doing. What I love about Ray Ortland's book is he spends the first two chapters talking about the honor that God wants for you and the honor that he wants for those women. And it's beautiful. Highly recommend it. So I see this over and over again. As people, we need this lens. We need a lens that, yes, we see guilt and innocence, but we need to see honor, shame too. Boy, and here's the reality. I'll end with this. As humans, we might talk about that we don't want honor, but we do. And we seek it from a lot of dumb places. We might look to our jobs or our cars that we drive, our associations, We might even use religion and religious effort to gain some sense of honor. People all over the world do this. And some of these things might give us a sense of temporary honor, but ultimately they all lead to even greater shame. The only true and lasting honor that we can find comes from God himself. Next week, we're going to talk about that. There's an invitation from God to come and receive that honor from him, not to look to other places. And so, yeah, there's an action step we're going to talk about, but boy... My goal today has simply been this, that you would see God in a different light. If your relation to God is just as this angry, restrained person who doesn't hit you, there's so much more beauty to what God does. He wants to lavish you with his love in just astounding ways. And my prayer for us is that you would meditate on this passage, read this passage again, look at those verses and see God for who he is. I'd like to pray for us. I'd like to invite you to stand, and we'll end our time just asking God for his help. Let's pray. God, I I am so thankful again. Thank you, God, for not leaving us to just our own understanding, our own imagination of who you are, but thank you for revealing yourself to us. And God, as I think about those who are in the room today, I imagine it's, wouldn't it be shocking to me to know that perhaps some do view you 
through a very different lens than what we looked at today. God, my prayer would simply be this, that we would see a more accurate view of you. That through the gospel, yes, we would celebrate the fact that that your wrath has been satisfied, that we have been forgiven of this great debt that sin incurs, but that the gospel is so much more than that, that, that the gospel gives us honor in place of our shame, gives us a new identity. God, help us to live into that identity this week with great humility, with great thankfulness. And God, again, this isn't something we can just decide to do. We can't, we can't just will ourselves into this. We, we really do need you working in our hearts, your spirit working in us to see this. Yes, there's a call to action, but this week, Lord, just help us to see you more clearly, to see your greatness, the greatness of your love, the bigness of your grace, how incredible you are. And God, I also want to lift up this congregation. You know where each person will be this week. You know who they will encounter. And I pray that you would go with them, give them words to speak that bring glory to you. And Lord, with all this, we pray this in the name of Jesus and through your spirit. Amen.